KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval, with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. San Diego has moved into the purple, the most restrictive COVID tier. But if people continue to disregard the guidance, we're going to keep seeing infections. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Oceanside has a new mayor, the first woman and first Latina in that office. We need jobs, we need affordable housing, we need to address our homeless issues. And I think that that's what I've been talking about, especially the last few years. And uh, I think that that's what the people want. The voters approved, but a lawsuit is challenging the new higher building height limit in the Midway District. And we'll get a preview of tonight's Poets Tree show from San Diego poet Gil Sotu. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego got the announcement it was dreading from the state today. Because of a rising number of coronavirus infections, the county has been moved from the red tier into the purple. The purple tier is the most restrictive of the state's COVID tiers, and it indicates the virus is widespread in the county. The ramifications of falling back into the purple are profound for business, schools, and everyday life. Joining me is KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, welcome. Hey, Maureen. What are the numbers that got us to fall into the purple tier? Yeah, Maureen, we know that county health officials have been warning us for the last week that we were, you know, coming up on this precipice of potentially going from the red tier to the more restrictive purple tier. Basically, they're saying, look, we've been seeing a, a case count, a daily case count in the 300s, and we need to be in the 200s uh, to stay in the red tier. Um, basically, to go to purple, we have to have a state-adjusted case rate of 7.0 or higher. Uh, last week, we saw that clock in at 7.4, which puts us in purple. Now, we need two weeks to change tiers. Um, and this week, we just got the numbers moments ago, 8. Nine is our adjusted case rate, so really high over purple, and that's what's bringing on these restrictions. Now, San Diego County, though, also has an overall test positivity rate of 3.3 that would qualify us for actually even a lower tier. So doesn't that count? Yeah, Maureen, I think one thing to keep in mind, you know, I just said the the quote unquote adjusted case rate. So the state looks at a number of factors. You know, it's not just looking at testing. It's looking at a number of factors when it comes up with this decision. And that's why we see some of those metrics like the equity uh, metrics that are designed to make sure that these rates are fair. Um, And and the county, you know, we heard Dr. Wilma Wooten say last week, look, you know, the state tiers are there and we know that this is happening because of an increase in cases. Does does the county have any say in protesting its placement in the purple tier? 
You know, there is a process that the state has a very official process. And now it's my understanding that a lot of that usually happens um, sort of in, in the wee hours before like the announcements that we have on Tuesdays when that new data comes out. But something to keep in mind for people, uh, restrictions, we'll sort of detail those in a minute. Um, but those restrictions don't hit until Saturday morning. So Saturday at midnight is when those restrictions will go into effect. So it's sort of unclear if the county can go back to the state and sort of negotiate, see if they can get us back knocked down to the red tier between now and then. What will landing, what what is landing in the purple tier mean for businesses? It basically clamps down on indoor operations. So for restaurants, churches, movie theaters, museums, um, and gyms, they can only operate outdoors. So that means, you know, if you've been going to eat inside of restaurants, that's not allowed anymore. No longer gyms. We'll have to see them moving some of their equipment outside. Uh, for zoos and aquarium, outdoors only. Retail uh, used to be 50% capacity for indoors. That's been reduced to 25%. Also for schools. Now, if your kid is already going to school in person, not going to affect you. But schools that are planning to preparing for distance opening, that's going to put a pause on this. And keep in mind, we have to stay in this tier for at least three weeks. So any schools that were planning to reopen in the next three weeks, those are now plans are going to be put on hold. And, you know, one of the reasons for these tiers is so that the cases of COVID don't swamp our hospitals and ICU capacity. So how is the county doing on being able to care for COVID patients? What is our hospitalization and ICU capacity? Yeah, I'm referencing numbers from yesterday here, but our hospital capacity uh, is is good. It's within the county metric, 72% hospital capacity. Um, and then ICU capacity, we're sitting at 31%, which is, uh, according to the county, a good metrics there. Now, we know statewide, too, um, just 4% of hospital patients are COVID-19 patients. We heard the governor talk about that yesterday. So statewide, we know we're doing okay. We also heard the governor you know, say we have 20,000-plus ventilators uh, available here in the state. Now, you were listening to the announcement of us falling back into the purple tier. Did the public health officials say anything that could give us any guidance as to what we can do or what, or what we've been doing wrong? Right. Well, I, I think the, the good news for businesses here and, and people who are worrying about these these looming restrictions is that there's a few days for them to prepare. Um, we know already talking to some businesses out there today, talking to the general manager of, of Hodads, that they're preparing. You know, they've been doing their indoor operations. Now they're getting ready to shift back to outdoor only. Now, you talk to a lot of those business owners. They say, look, you know, I, I built a restaurant here in the community. It's built on an indoor operation business and outdoor by itself is just not sustainable. Okay, I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. And Matt, thank you so much. Thanks, Maureen. As the nation tops 10 million coronavirus cases and San Diego falls into the state's most restrictive COVID tier, finally, we may have a glimmer of good news about the virus. The pharmaceutical company Pfizer has announced its vaccine is showing to be over 90% effective in preventing coronavirus infection. The company is hoping to submit its results for FDA approval of the vaccine by the end of this month. Joining me is Dr. Mark Sawyer, an infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital and a member of California's COVID-19 Scientific Safety Review Workgroup. Dr. Sawyer, welcome to the program. Great to join you. Now, we just found out that San Diego has been moved into the purple tier. That's the state's most restricted COVID tier. What's the main reason that COVID rates are going up in San Diego? Are we getting lax or is it inevitable this time of year? I don't really know the answer to that, I, I, except that I think we are still too lax in general as a community. We're doing better than many, but the fact that the virus still circulates so vigorously is an indication that we're not distancing ourselves well enough. 
and we're not wearing masks well enough. And of course, we're not alone. The virus is going up in many parts of the country again uh, in the last few weeks. Many people believe shutting down the economy is only going to make things far worse for more people than having a few people get sick. I wonder how you answer that. That's a tough equation for sure, but I, I wouldn't characterize it as a few people get sick. We are seeing a lot of people get sick, and we're, of course, seeing lots of deaths from COVID. So this is a very serious infection. Uh, I do think we need to try to get back as close to business as usual as we can, but that requires that everybody wear a mask and try and socially distance as much as possible. That doesn't mean businesses have to be shut down and restaurants have to be closed. But if people continue to disregard the guidance, we're going to keep seeing infections. What's your take on this information released by Pfizer? Is this really cause for celebration? Yes, I think this is very positive information. I was actually just on a meeting this morning uh, hearing a little bit more about that, and it looks very encouraging. So far, there hasn't been any significant safety concern, but we need to gather a little more data to be sure that their vaccine is safe. But this early announcement of effectiveness is better than many people predicted we would see. How do researchers know that it's more than 90% effective? How are these tests conducted? Well, that's the whole point of the clinical trials that everybody has been hearing about for the last several months. Uh, So they take a group of people and half of the people get the vaccine and the other half don't, and you don't know which because they get an an injection of just saline. So they're still getting a shot, but they're not getting the real thing. And then you follow those people for a period of time and see who gets COVID and who doesn't. So what happened in the the trial from Pfizer is that a, a significant number, I think it was 90 or more people, got COVID and they were all, almost all in the group who did not get the real vaccine and everybody who got the real vaccine was protected. That's how how you calculate a 90% effectiveness. And this vaccine requires two injections, isn't that right? Right, So, so they didn't even start gathering data until people had received two doses. So this is This is the effectiveness we would predict if we started to use this vaccine widely now in two doses of people. Now, it is still preliminary. The number may change some, but it is quite encouraging that it's as high as it it is. When will we know if there are any side effects? Well, we already have some information on side effects. Even before the large trial, there were smaller trials that looked specifically at safety. Uh, But that's what we're waiting for primarily now, I think, before the FDA decides to release the Pfizer vaccine or any other is to gather enough safety data to be confident that the benefit from the vaccine outweighs any risk from side effects. And does Pfizer know how long the vaccine's immunity will last? No, that's one of the things that we're not going to know until time goes by. And uh, so we're going to cross our fingers and hope that it lasts for a long period of time. There are some animal model studies that suggest it does last at least months, but we won't really know in people until it's used. Now, if and when this vaccine is approved by the FDA, what will your scientific safety review group begin to do? Well, we're going to have access to the same kind of information that the FDA uh, looks at to decide whether to release the vaccine. 
And we're just going to take an independent look at that same data and, and look at it in the context of California and make sure it makes sense for us as a state to move ahead with the dissemination of the vaccine through public health. And, uh, you know, this is meant primarily to reassure people that, that a group outside of the FDA group is looking at the same information and reaching the same conclusion. Aren't there other vaccines also in the pipeline, also in development? There are many vaccines in development. There are actually six that have been targeted for major development efforts, and two of them are well along the way, and we may see uh, several more come out and be considered for licensure in 2021. So I think the horizon is bright that we're out of all of these vaccines, we're going to find some that work quite well and are safe. And those are the ones that we're going to disseminate widely. Now, how long do you think it will be before most people have access to a vaccine from a medical standpoint? Well, I think it's going to be months before there is enough vaccine manufactured for a large percent of the population to receive it. In polls that have been taken on the subject, about half the people surveyed say they won't get a vaccine against COVID. They're not going to take it. If that number holds, how will that impact the effectiveness of the vaccine? Well, it's a great question. I mean, we certainly need a large percent of the population to get vaccinated if we want to get back to business as usual and reopen restaurants and stores and schools. I I do think that the public's attitude may change once they see the real product and, and can be reassured by groups like the California Safety Group that the vaccine really is safe. What kind of help would you be expecting from the federal government in rolling out this vaccine as the months go by? Well, the federal government has already put together some guidelines for distribution of vaccine and prioritization of vaccine. The group at CDC called the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices is an independent advisory group of non-CDC people who meet with CDC and give them recommendations, which are then disseminated around the country. So those groups are already doing work to prepare us for first evaluating a vaccine and then distributing it once we have it. Okay, I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Sawyer, an infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital and a member of California's COVID-19 Scientific Safety Review Work Group. Dr. Sawyer, as always, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John with Maureen Cavanaugh. 
Oceanside is San Diego County's third largest city after San Diego and Chula Vista. It has traditionally been seen as a conservative town. It shares a border with Camp Pendleton. But Oceanside voters have elected a new mayor who is a Democrat. Esther Sanchez is also the city's first Latina mayor and the first woman to serve in this capacity. Mayor Sanchez, congratulations and welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you, Allison. Thank you so much. Um, it's an exciting time in Oceanside. Well, yes, that's a lot of firsts. What, what's your reaction to being the first woman and the first Latina to be elected mayor? I think that a lot of what we have in Oceanside includes the magnificent diversity that we have. And growing up in Oceanside, um, actually, my dad grew up in Oceanside. So when I grew up in Oceanside, there were maybe 30,000 people. And so I still feel that it's a small town, even though it's grown to be over 174,000. And for me, it's about the people. And I think that, uh, you know, people elected me because of who I am. But to be the first Latina and the first um, woman is truly historic. So you've been on the council for 20 years and you've seen a lot of changes. What does your election say about what you think Oceanside wants to see in the future? I believe that Oceansiders would like to see some of the small town kind of characteristics stay, um, which is what my sense of it is and the way I try to bring us back the character to maintain that character. Um, so I think that, that because of that, I, I think that uh, people want to give me that chance, they tend to want to give me that chance. Um, so in terms of, you know, we, we would like to keep kind of the mom and pop type character for the downtown and also kind of try to address the traffic in our, you know, in our more eastern parts, especially of the city. And we're, we're having a terrible time in terms of jobs. The jobs to residents ratio has really uh, gone far beyond what we should have let it go. So we need jobs. We need affordable housing. We need to address our homeless issues. And I think that that's what I've been talking about, especially the last few years. And uh, I think that the, that's what the people want. And that's why they elected me. Okay, so let's uh, talk about homelessness. What, what do you think is the first thing that needs to be done? We need to provide a shelter. And maybe I should sh say shelters, because it, it just can't be one. We have traditionally, the council majority has you know, suggested that the churches can take that responsibility over. We were down to just one organization, the Bread of Life, being able to do that. It's a very difficult thing to do because churches are not uh, set up to, to have showers and do beddings. And, you know, with, with the funding that's available, it's five to seven dollars per bed. And it's that's just not something that anyone can do. So we need shelters. We need to be the leadership on this. Um, we do have some private individuals who've been wanting wanting to, to do this since we have been pretty much inactive. So um, I'm thinking also day centers to try to get folks indoors and, and try to see how we can help, you know, lower that the numbers down to what is the most difficult to address. And, and that includes mental health issues. And what, what do you propose to do to attract more jobs to Oceanside? Well, it, it's, it, it all ends up being a land use issue. We have a general plan that pretty much our forefathers and sisters <laughs> laid out a plan that would include industrial, commercial, 
And several of those areas have, over time, been converted into residential. And so the remaining uh, industrial and commercial really needs to maintain um, that status. And what we need to do is, is develop job centers, which is what other cities have done. Um, this is something that we need to, to make as a priority. I think we have excellent staff. Um, we, we need to make the, you know give them that direction and, and work with staff in making that happen. So, Mayor Sanchez, are you concerned about the city's finances as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? I am. And, you know, this is kind of a silver lining that we're, you know, becoming this bedroom community. In terms of our revenues, uh, the, the tax base has mostly relied on property taxes and, and, and sales tax. And we're just beginning to rely on TOT. And especially with, rec- re- with regard to vacation rentals, that's something very recent. So we, we've actually fared pretty well because of that. But you know, how long we can sustain this because we did do a job freeze and uh, pretty much eliminated our maintenance and operations funds. And we we are spending some reserves. Um, how long we can do that? You know, I, I, I definitely join in, in others really appreciating the fact that we, we are looking at a vaccine that's what, 90% perhaps? Um, that And that will be free. I mean, I think that, you know, that news comes at a really, really critical time. Now, the Oceanside is becoming a destination for many visitors, and TOT, the transient occupancy tax, could be affected too. Um, do, do you see the future of Oceanside as, as a destination for visitors? I, I do. I do, especially um, for uh, those that are choosing not to travel, say, outside. We're a, a hop and a skip and away from several inland places um, to come to Oceanside. We we work really hard to maintain a clean beach. And um, we're at this time talking about how to uh, make it possible to have more sand on our beaches. But at the same time, I think, we, you know, this was an election. I think the voters are also saying, okay, don't, don't just think about tourism, think about us. Um, so, it's a balance. It's it's definitely a balance, and 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 our I think the key is to maintain a good balance. Now, you strongly opposed a new development in Morrow Hills, the North River Farms project. The voters rejected it, and it would have added more than five hundred new homes to the city's roster. Uh, the state of California is requiring the city to build thousands of new homes in the next decade to to meet the growing population. Where in the city do you want new housing to be built? Well, what, what we have a lot of infill. Uh, places where where housing, higher density housing could be built. And certainly it would make a lot better sense if it's near services, existing services. That's what made uh, this project out on our, our farm, on a farm, um, extremely unattractive. Uh, the staff, uh, you know, recommended against it because it did not, it was not going to be able to provide us um, really um, any requirements that we are being, um, you know, that the state is demanding that we fill. So it, it would have been in a place that had absolutely zero infrastructure improvements, no water, sewer, roads. It would have been a, a it, it certainly would have been an impact to the general fund as well as um, on services. I, I was very concerned about what it would do to water bills, for example, and uh, just the traffic the you know, over 7,000 additional daily trips onto 76 when it's already over, you know, congested. 
you know, the fact that it was turned down by staff and also by the planning commission, uh, you know, really hit home that uh, this was not a project that that would, you know, take us to the next level. So now you are a Democrat. The The other four Oceanside City Council members who've emerged from the election are perhaps more pro-growth and development than yourself. And the mayor is just one vote on the five-person council. How do you plan to build consensus with the council? Well, as, as you mentioned, I have been around for, uh, you know, 20 years on the council, but th- this is a place that I was born and raised. I um, Even beyond that, I had spent, I've spent time in San Diego and elsewhere in the county and developed relationships with other leadership. So what I'm hoping is that, you know, as a leader that has, you know, good relationships um, in the region, um, that I will, you know, really move us forward. Um, I think it is a message being sent to us. And, you know, there's another election two years from now. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't, you know, I, I don't feel that what um, happened just this past election is saying, oh, yeah, we we want these, you know, kind of radical growth issues to continue. I am not against growth. I am for um, smart growth and ensuring that we are able to continue to provide a, a certain level of quality of service, um, quality of care to our residents, um, whoever they are. And, and I think for me, coming from, you know, uh, one of the poor neighborhoods in Oceanside, I want to see uh, changes that will be proactive and provide even more opportunities to our, to our community. Our, our youth is very uh, diverse and the future of the city depends on their success. So um, it's, I think it's, it's time we, you know, reassessed and I'm hoping that we can do that as a, as a council and as a community. We've been speaking with Esther Sanchez, who is poised to become Oceanside's first woman and first Latina mayor. Mayor Sanchez, thank you so much. Thank you, Allison. San Diego City voters approved Measure E with nearly 57% of the vote, but the will of the people may or may not be enough to overturn the 30-foot height limit when the Midway District is redeveloped. The outcome of the measure is likely to be tied up in court for quite a while. San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Jennifer Van Grove has written about the opposition that could delay plans already in the works to transform the sports arena area. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you for having me. So now, why is this height limit such an important issue for the future of development in San Diego? Briefly, what's its history? Well, it's important for a number of reasons. So the Midway District is um, defined by the military bases that dominate the land use there and this this coastal height restriction. And so there hasn't been a lot of redevelopment or revitalization in that area because there's not too much that you can do with a 30-foot height limit and a very small, I don't want to say small, but um, a large portion of land is is military and then there's less land that's available um, for redevelopment. And so it's a very central issue right now because the city, they own 48 acres right around the sports arena and they'd like to see that land completely redone, completely redeveloped. And in order to do that, you know, they have to bring in a developer and the developer is going to want to rebuild the sports arena. And right now I'm talking about Brookfield Properties, 
in order to rebuild the sports arena, you have to go above 30 feet because the existing arena was built before the coastal height restriction was put in place. So you have a number of factors at play. But basically, if you want to see the Midway District look differently, this height restriction has to be eased, or at least that's that's kind of the logic that was put before voters and which voters have, have agreed to. It's true that the, the height limit was put into place back in the 1970s, right? So it's been in place for a very long time. Who, who is challenging this move to lift the 30-foot height limit and, and why? Well, it's a small group. It's called Save Our Access, and they were behind the opposition campaign for Measure E, and they really believe in public access and um, park and recreation space. And there's there's a lot of different reasons why, but um, you know, at the core of it, this group, which is led by um, John McNabb, um, who's an environmental activist, and he's been involved in um, some other controversial deals, including um, what happened with Liberty station. So, but at the core of it is, you know, this, this notion of public and private ownership. And there is, you know, a lot of publicly owned land in the Midway district, and it is save our accesses belief that the Midway district was rightfully included in the city's coastal zone, which as you mentioned, was determined, you know, in 1972 by a vote. Um, So there's this strong um, kind of core belief by this group that the Midway District was always supposed to be a part of the coastal zone that deserves protecting. And not only that, that there's so much land that could be potentially privatized that the public will you know, be at a loss should that happen. The public will lose potentially opportunities to, you know, build great parks. That's that's kind of one of the arguments there, but it really comes down to public versus private and access to the coast. And they would be calling for more environmental reviews, right, before anything changed? That's kind of the foundation of the lawsuit. The California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA, as it's referred to, is a big part of why this group is challenging the Measure E vote. How do city planners respond to this legal challenge? Well, uh, so, you know, let me just start and kind of break down the legal challenge. So before voters went to the polls, Save Our Access laid, laid the groundwork for this lawsuit and they're essentially saying that the measure, you know, should be invalidated if passed because when um, city planners put together the community plan for the Midway District, they did not study the environmental impacts of raising the height limit. And that's true. So they did not study that because they could not study that. It's it's a very sort of cart before the horse situation. And so where things are right now is should Saver Access continue to move forward with this civil action, they would be seeking to invalidate the measure on those grounds. However, the city's position has been and continues to be that when they put together this community plan in 2018 and they did the the state-required environmental review, that at that time, it was comprehensive enough to consider the impacts of potential redevelopment and that those are covered regardless of the 30 foot height limit. So because they studied, you know, a population boom and more traffic and, you know, everything that comes with increased density, then they have their bases covered is the logic. So when I talked to land use attorneys last week, 
Um, they said it's going to be, you know, should this case move forward, it's going to be a very like technical look at the, the Midway community plan and the environmental review and whether that environmental review for the community plan was sufficient enough to cover any potential impacts from raising the height limit. So, Jennifer, in, in practice, what does this legal challenge mean for those working on the plans to redevelop the Midway District? So in practice, it's it just kind of puts a cloud over everything. Um, my understanding in talking with land use attorneys is that nothing will change until there's a hearing in this case, and there is no hearing scheduled. So right now, the measure can you know, move forward, be codified, et cetera. And so the issue kind of comes to a head once there's a hearing scheduled, and that may be three to four months. So right now, I suspect things will carry on as if Measure E is passed. So the city will negotiate with Brookfield Properties as if there is no 30-foot height limit, um, and things will move move ahead on that grounds. However, when there's a hearing, then this might get a lot more complicated. But for now, I think we can all carry on as if Measure E is passed and it'll move forward. And then the courts may choose to intervene. But right now, that's not the case. Well, thanks for helping us tease out the details of this, Jennifer. It's a little bit of a mess, but I'm here to help. (laughs) (laughs) We've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Jennifer Van Grove. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. San Diego spoken word poet Gil Sotu hosts the weekly online show, The Poet's Tree. The event is an arts engagement program for the Old Globe Theater. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Sotu about modern poetry and tonight's show. Gil, you are the host and creator of this series that's at the Old Globe Theater called The Poet's Tree. So explain what this is. So The Poet's Tree is a, a interactive interview series where I get to interview some of my poetic heroes and also use them to help inspire other people to write. So it's not just something that when you listen to it or watch it, that you're going to do nothing. Like we have interactive games with our audience. We have challenges at the end of each episode where uh, writers write in their poetic responses to whatever the challenge from the artist is. And the artist for the following week helps me read some of those responses. So they get their poems read out loud by some of the, the top poets in the in the country. And uh, it's really just a, a, my excuse to be able to learn from the best. 
you know, and, and bring everybody along for the, that ride. So this is for both people who are poets themselves, but also if somebody is just interested in modern poetry, they would also enjoy this. Yeah. And also, uh, I would say anybody uh, interested in just performance of any type. So the 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 caliber of the people that I, I bring on, the vast majority of them have been HBO Def Jam poets. They've won Tonys. They have, you know, been nominated for Grammys. So just as an artist in general, I talk, I speak to them a lot about what it's like to be an, an artist and pushing through your own negative self-talk. And so it's it's centered around poetry, but I think that it really branches out. I don't think that I've ever interviewed an artist that was just strictly a poet. They usually uh, have a lot of different slashes in, in what they do. So it's, it's, it's really open to a, a lot of different genres of, of expression. And tell me who you're going to have on tonight for the Poets Tree. Tonight, I have Jessica Caremore. So Jessica Caremore has, has performed everywhere from the White House to she was, the I think, the first poet to win Showtime at the Apollo and win it multiple times is a, a big talent competition in, in New York. She is the founder of Black Girls Rock, this huge concert in Detroit. She's just done amazing things with poetry throughout her career. Uh, so I'm excited to really interview her. Last last week, we interviewed uh, Reggie Gaines, whose show was on Broadway, Bring In Noise, Bring In The Funk. And the reason why I'm, I'm mentioning previous episodes is all my episodes, all our episodes, I should say, because this, this could not have been done without the Old Globe, are available to be viewed and, and you can follow along with it uh, on our Facebook page or our YouTube page, both on Facebook and YouTube Live. And what is it about poetry that appeals to you? I think that it's, it's because, one, uh, there are rules to it, but if you break them, it's fine. It's a form of self-expression where you can be as metaphorical as you want to be, but you can also be really straight to the point and it's still very poetical. Uh, it lends itself to songwriting and rap and storytelling and uh, all sorts of, you can mix in dance with it. So all sorts of uh, different types of self-expression fits in very well and in tune so when something and if you think about it like when they talk describe something very beautiful you know whether it be in a, a, a politician's speech or um even like a vision something with visual arts they say it's very poetic and that's it's almost like that's the epitome of what art is you know um so i, I love it to death and sometimes people are a little afraid of poetry they think ah you know i don't get it or it's not really for me. What do you say to kind of those people in terms of maybe lessening their fear or opening them up to that experience? Um, when they say they don't get it, it's just what they're really saying is that they don't get that person, <laughs> you know, because it's so varied. It's so varied. Like you could turn on a, a episode of HBO Def Jam or or go to a local open mic and hear a poem 
and get it right away. It just that individual, you may not like it, but you'll get it. And then other ones that you may like, but you need like maybe five, six more reads to really understand it. But something about it, the way you delivered it or the way she she put the words together, you just like it. So um, you get it that way. So it's I say to those people, you just haven't experienced <laughs> to lack of a better term you haven't experienced a, a lot of good poetry yet um because i've performed all over the country too and i've yet to to find someone who absolutely hates all type of poetry what i experience is someone coming to me and say i never knew poetry could be like that and that's the same way that i experienced it uh when i first um really got into modern poetry I they, they had it in a movie that I watched here in Hillcrest and it was called Slam. And when I heard that for the first time, I was like, oh, my God, like I didn't know because this is not the stuff that they teach in school. That's why I'm always so happy when I'm able to go to high schools and bring my super friends to perform uh, because it really opens kids eyes to like, oh, it doesn't have to be like this, you know. Uh, and and it just it, it opens up a whole new world. I mean, I could just say this and I, I can curse in it and I can do this. And I what uh, I could really just talk about my. Feel yeah. Yeah. It's all good. Like and 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 try to craft it the way that makes it feel beautiful to you. And where can people get information about this? You go to the arts engagement page on the Old Globe. You can go to the oldglobe.org uh, uh, first and foremost. Uh, go to our Facebook page, Arts Engagement at the Old Globe, uh, both on YouTube and Facebook. It's my website, gilsotu.com, G-I-L-L-S-O-T-U.com. So any of those places, if you want to find out, find out about the poetry, tree, you, you'll get challenged. You know, we have a, every week we have a, um, we take a literary theme and a common saying and we smash it together and you have two minutes to write one line of poetry and we have people participating every week. Uh, and then again, uh, these, these people that I have on are, are master teacher, teachers. So they're giving you poetry prompts that really get you going um and you get to write on that and have another master teacher read your work uh which is great and so uh it's a fun show and we have fun we laugh a lot and and i hope you all join us all right i want to thank you very much for uh talking about the poet's tree yeah thank you for having me appreciate it beth that was beth accomando speaking with gil so too tonight's event starts at 5 30 on the old globe theater's arts engagement facebook page and youtube channel The Pacific Crest Trail is 2,650 miles long. It stretches from the Mexican border up through California, Oregon, and Washington to the Canadian border. Every year, there's a window of opportunity for those with dreams of through-hiking the whole thing in one go. It takes months, and not everyone makes it. San Diego resident Barney Scout Mann has written a personal story called Journeys North about the cohort of Pacific Crest Trail through-hikers that he was a part of in 2007. That year, extreme weather meant only a third of the hikers who started the trail here in San Diego County reached the Canadian border. Barney Scoutman joins us now. So Barney, or should I call you Scout, welcome to Midday. I love being called Scout. I'm my best self out there. 
Okay, good. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your name. Uh, you write about how everyone on the trail eventually adopts a trail name, and yours is Scout. Well, let's start with the word adopted, because that's actually the opposite of what happens, is the name is usually thrust upon you. Uh, you've done something stupid. <laughs> uh, it's a play on a, a words. If you were sitting around a, um, a campfire a after having eaten beans during that day, and what happens naturally did happen, and someone asks you, what is that? And you answer, that's Rolling Thunder. 13 years later, I still know him <laughs> as Rolling Thunder. <laughs> and to thousands, if not literally tens of thousands of people, I'm simply known as Scout. And my wife, who I followed for 2,650 miles, she is simply known as Frodo. Does having a trail name give you a, a different identity from your everyday life? You know, imagine if you were suddenly thrust into Narnia or thrust into Hogwarts. You know, would, Allison, wouldn't you want to have a different name? Yeah. And there's a very similar sentiment. We were out there for five months and it's really a different way of living. And you are completely removed from all those things that we call normal or off-trail life. So names are given usually early on in the trail. So it allows you to, in some way, it sort of frees you up in a way to be a different self. That is so true. And that's one of the attractions for being out there. I, we are different out there and we are more free. Now, rather than, you know, describing in your book the, the changing landscape along the trail, you do a bit of that, but you chose mainly to focus on a handful of hikers, through hikers with you, and you weave their stories together so beautifully so we get a sense of the internal journey as well as the, the outward trials and tribulations. Why did you decide to tell your story that way? When you think about this, you may think, okay, you're going out there and it's about seeing pretty scenery. The landscape, maybe putting yourself in a in a in harsh weather conditions, but what it's really about is the people. That's what becomes the most important. These people that maybe you'll be around for a week or two, and then you'll see a month later. It's thirteen years ago, and if I had met you on the trail for fifteen minutes and you showed up my front door today, well, it's COVID, we wouldn't hug each other, but we would literally treat each other as brother and sister. You feel differently. I would hear stories every day in a conversation you wouldn't have with the best friend once a year. And this is why I wanted to write. I wanted to share these stories, these amazing people who chose to pull themselves out of society for five months and hike in the wilderness. Talk about how you, you end up sort of either walking alone or, or with someone else on any given day. How does that happen? Uh, the term is leapfrog, and it literally is uh, it, it's random. We might, for a, um, a few days, uh, be hiking around someone. So you might see them in a break. And when you see people months later, you have these stories you want to tell. I'm 69, folks, and I don't have the most perfect memory. But for each one of the 155 days I was out there, I can tell you a story. This was the feeling I wanted to share. I got quite invested in some of the characters. It must have been quite difficult for you to decide which ones to, to choose for your book. But... But talk about how you became invested and how the hike was going for some of the other characters on the trail. The hike, 20, 25 miles a day, is hard. And all honesty, there's a good part of the, of the time that you are carrying some burden of pain. A number of the younger folks we hiked around, and I feature four, four of them in the book, uh, Dalton and Blazer and Tony Nadine, these people became like our children trust. In fact, if you would call us trail mom and dad, and we call them a, a you know, trail son and trail daughter. And I wanted to both share what that closest felt like, 
but also share the depth of stories. Why do people break away for five months? Often it's because something traumatic, something very deep has happened to them. Um, and out there, they're willing to talk about it. Tony and I are taking a shower side by side. There's a thin plywood you know, wall between us. It's open to the sky, but we're still, you know, this closeness and we're washing out four or five days worth of dirt. And we both tell each other's tales. I hear about, uh, Tony shares about a suicide attempt. And out there, he felt safe enough to tell me and I felt safe enough to hear it. And I wanted to share that feeling. Well, talk a bit about why was it so important to make it to the end? In some respect, it's not. It's what it was important was to stay out there. Uh, my wife fell and broke, uh, literally had, had, had a tooth uh, come out of its socket, and she had to shove it back in and broke the other half of the tooth off. And ah. during that half day that we're trying to deal with this and trying to find a way 20 miles to get into the next smallest little town, being told no dentist will come out and finally getting one to do One thing she really realized was, I want to be out here. I want to be part of these people. I want to be part of this adventure. You are, in fact, one of the people who has walked all three of the trails, the Appalachian Trail, the Great Divide, and, and the Pacific Crest Trail, major through-hiking trails in this country. How, how would you describe the experience of doing the Pacific Crest Trail, our trail, you know, compared to the others? Uh, when people ask me which one's the best, I say the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, the Appalachian Trail, they call the Green Tunnel. In a lot of parts, that's what it is. I could go all day. And I have a little guidebook would tell me, these are the three spots today you'll have a view. And you're much closer to civilization. I enjoyed it thoroughly, but it was different. The Continental Divide Trail, way fewer people, 60% of the time easily. I was, I was by myself. I could go 48 hours, hike 50 miles, and not see another human being. As wild as it was, it's not quite as stunningly beautiful as much of the time as the Pacific Crest Trail. So our trail, and I love the word that, that you use the word R with that, um, our own. <laughs> it's wilderness, but it still has an edge of approachability to it. It has people, but you can still be alone. It's also where I grew up. I grew up this year in Nevada, so it's my first love too. So thank you so much for talking with us, Barney. It's a real pleasure. And folks out there, I will hope that you give Journeys North a chance. I will take you far, far away for a while. We've been speaking with San Diego author Barney Scout Mann about his book Journeys North, the Pacific Crest Trail. And he'll be talking more about his book tomorrow, Wednesday, November the 11th at 4 o'clock at a Facebook Live event hosted by Warwick's. And he'll be in conversation with the co-host of Away With Words here on KPBS, Martha Barnett. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.